Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. Uh, Let's give our attentive hearing to the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship and gathering us in your house and uh, through the, the psalms and the praise we sing, reminding us of the gospel, the good news, and and calling us to confess all that we are before you so that we would find once again the grace that we need today and for this week from your words of encouragement. And now, Lord, uh, we ask that you would prepare our hearts like good soil uh, to receive this word and begin to remove even now the the things that choke the fruit, um, the worries of this life, and, and help us instead to turn all of our focus, our attention, to you and to your word. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. Now we are hitting the fourth letter uh, to the the churches, the seven churches, uh, fourth of the seven letters. And this is the letter written to the church in um, Thyatira. Uh, This is the longest of the seven um, letters. And being the fourth of the seven, uh, it's also a centerpiece of when it comes to the letter to the seven churches. Um, why would Thyatira be placed at the center and, and hold this sort of central importance uh, among all the churches? And there are a couple reasons for that. Here's one that I want to share with you, and that is just the, the context of the city as a whole, the city of Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira wasn't the wealthiest city. It wasn't the city like Ephesus, which resembled like modern-day New York City, nor was it the most politically significant city like, like Pergamum or modern-day uh, Washington, D.C. But Thyatira was a city that had a little bit of everything. Uh, it had a bit of rural, a bit of urban. It had some political significance and some financial significance as well. It had this military history from the reign of Alexander all the way up to Caesar. Uh, the city had various uh, trade guilds that formed its basically financial community. And if you look at Acts chapter 16, you'll find Lydia, the seller of purple goods, and you'll find that she was 
uh, from Thyatira herself. Um, and remember, in the Greco-Roman world, the, the, the spiritual, religious practices were very much uh, mixed in with the financial activities, political activities, social activities of their time. Remember, even medicine was mixed with, with mythology. So um, it had a little bit of everything, a little bit of the, the financial interests of Ephesus, the, uh, the, the political significance of Pergamum, and also the various religious interests that are general in Greco-Roman world. And perhaps, um, therefore, it's also a city that wanted more of everything. Uh, a city that wants, uh, the political significance of Pergamum and wanted the financial significance of Ephesus. A city with ambitions, a city with um, political and financial aspirations. You could say it's kind of like Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we're not quite New York City, but financially we're kind of moving up, aren't we? The, I think we have like, what, 13 of the 500 fortune 500 companies and 24 of the thousand companies, right? Fortune 1,000 companies are headquartered here. Um, we have a history of, of, of significant political events uh, from the civil rights movement and even further back, right? We have a little bit of everything, right? Um, and maybe we're also aspiring to be more of everything, right? Um, now, what did that mean for the Christians in Thyatira? Did it impact the way they, as Christians living in this city, with a little bit of everything, impact the way they aspire towards things? Did it affect the way they view their financial stability, their political significance, and their religious way of life? Sure. Would it have taken their eyes off of the main goal uh, that Christ, the head of the church, the king of the church, had caught them into? Absolutely. It would have had an impact. So what would be the message that a church in such a climate uh, would need to hear most urgently? Uh, why is Jesus writing to them? Okay, I want to divide our passage into three parts and three points. First is the main concern that Jesus raises for the Christians in Thyatira, the main concern. Second, an, a very important distinction that he makes for them. A very important distinction. And, and lastly, the major goal that he's redirecting them to. A main concern, an important distinction, and a major goal. These three, all right? So first, what is the main concern that Jesus is raising? And as, as it's been the case for the past three letters, the key to the main concern is often found in even the way Jesus identifies himself in the opening of the letter, and this is also true here. Look at how Jesus identifies himself in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay. Now, real quick, if you combine this description of the Son of God with what's in verse 27, where it says he has this authority to carry the rod of iron and earthen pots are broken into pieces, when you combine the two together, you have basically a direct quote out of Psalm 2. Out of Psalm 2, you find the Son of God who rules the earth literally with a rod of iron, whose power makes the earth and pots break into pieces. It's word for word taken out of Psalm chapter 2, and essentially referring to Jesus' uh, divine power and authority as the Son of God. That's what it's referring to. 
So if you combine that, that description of the Son of God with eyes like a flame of fire, which is basically the all-discerning eye, all-seeing eye of the Son of God, if you combine those two together, you basically have this all-discerning truth that has the authority and power of God himself, the creator. Okay. God is, Jesus is identifying himself here as the son of God who is the carrier of absolute truth because he is absolute authority. He is the creator. Now, why does he find it necessary to identify himself this way for the Christians in Thyatira? Okay. Because one reason is what they really lacked in the city of Thyatira and the church in Thyatira was a discernment for truth. Discernment for truth. So Jesus opens up with reestablishing himself as the, the final arbiter of truth, the one with ultimate truth and absolute truth. Uh, if you look at verse 19, it's interesting. When he praises the Christians in Thyatira, there is nothing there about their holding on to sound teaching as as there was praise right, for the Ephesus, a church in Ephesus, that praise is absent here. It says instead, I know your works. I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Okay? The praise is centered around their works, their deeds, but not their doctrine and not their truth. What is the issue at hand? Verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, now, Very much like that use of Balaam in the previous letter, right? kind of a throwback to the Old Testament character to use as a sort of a symbol or an illusion. Here, this reference to Jezebel is an illusion back to the Jezebel in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, starting around chapter 16, uh, a, basically a Baal-worshipping prophetess and princess from a foreign king, kingdom who marries the king of Israel, Ahab, uh, and basically begins to bring Baal worship into Israel. And the king, of Ahab, uh, king Ahab, he himself builds an altar for the worship of Baal. Now, um, all this time, what you find in the context of 1 Kings is Ahab, all the Israelites who are falling into Baal worship, you know what's really fascinating is they continue to identify themselves as Israel, the chosen people of God. Okay. They didn't re-identify themselves and sort of re-narrate uh, their sort of story to be, oh, now we are Baal worshipers. We, we, we belong to this, this new kingdom, Sidon, and, and belong to King Ahab. No, uh, we, uh, we are still Israel. <laughs> We're Israelites who just... Indulge in a little bit of idolatry, a little bit of sexual immorality, a little bit of Baal worship, that's all. So why the allusion to Jezebel in, in this letter to Thyatira? There were those in the church, influenced by, taught by this prophetess, and led to uh, the practice of sexual immorality and idolatry while thinking I'm still a Christian. I'm a Christian who just indulges a little bit of you know, what, what everybody's doing in my city. I'm still a Christian. And the, the, 
the bigger thing that Jesus reveals for them is how this came to be. How did this happen? The first clue is in verse 20, where it says, Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching. Teaching. It starts with teaching, doesn't it? It doesn't start with seducing. It starts with teaching. Um, when it says she calls herself a prophetess, that means she identified herself as God's messenger. God's messenger. And the fact that she was teaching means she had a place in the church to do just that, to teach from the pulpit. Teaching is not a casual word in the scripture. It's a, it's a word that's reserved for the, the ordained elders, the teaching elders, shepherds who convey the, the apostles' teaching. This prophetess Jezebel, a Baal worshiper, was teaching. She had a pulpit in the church, which is rather shocking, right? And Jesus points out how, just how that came to be. Now, before we get there, because that, that's more uh, diving into point number two, let's, let's conclude the first point here about what is Jesus' main concern here? Is it, is it this whole deal with, with, with Jezebel and he, she has infiltrated the church? Yes, but that's not the ultimate concern. Notice, by bringing up the story of the Israelites in 1 Kings, just how unchanging, how consistent, and simple in that reverent sense, in the elegant sense of the word simple, God's main concern is. His main concern is still the faithfulness of his bride or lack thereof. It's still the spiritual husband expressing his justified jealousy over his bride, his people, who's being unfaithful to him right now. That was God's heart in his words given to ancient Israel, and, and that's God's heart right now expressed in his words to, to spiritual Israel, to, to the church in the book of Revelation. The main concern is still the same. He yearns jealously for his bride, for his people. That's his ultimate concern. And we should not miss that and treat this like some, this is Jesus just expressing his anger about false doctrine and heresy. He's just out to eradicate false teaching, that's all. No, he's yearning jealously over his bride. That's what he is up to here. His agenda is not so much merely correcting false teaching. His agenda is more so, more so, drawing his bride back to himself, back to himself. Okay, that's the concern. That's the main concern. Now to the second point. How does, how does he go about then helping the church discern what's happening and re, reacquire a, a discernment for truth that they've totally lost their grip on? He makes a very important distinction for them. Uh, it says in verse 20, in a sort of a very like thesis statement, general sort of way, that their problem was you tolerate her. The church's problem, in a word, was tolerance. Tolerance. And now that's, that's, a, that's a buzzword in our culture, isn't it? Right? Tolerance, right? Getting this word right and, and making the distinction between what our culture means by the word tolerance and what the Bible means by tolerance is the key to understanding this. So we have to make that distinction. In our culture, tolerance is a word that's assumed to mean the same thing for everyone. It's generally meant affirming everything about everyone, 
That's tolerance. Affirming absolutely everything there is to affirm about an individual. That's tolerance. Is that what the scriptures mean by tolerance? No, and we have to make a thoughtful distinction here between good tolerance and bad tolerance. If you think about it, tolerance is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, there are some people who jump on that too quickly and say, you know, our culture has hijacked the word and I, and I hate the word tolerance. Well, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's a good kind of tolerance. To be tolerant of people who differ from us culturally, uh, religiously, or politically by being a good neighbor to them, by being hospitable towards them, by treating them with respect, with kindness, with benefit of the doubt, with love and generosity. That's good tolerance. In fact, I would say that's not only required of Christians, that's too low of a bar for Christians because you know the command for us is not to tolerate our neighbors, but to love them. It's not even to tolerate our enemies, but to love our enemies. This is, not only, this is the minimum that Christians ought to do, being tolerant. We have to go beyond that and love them. But there's another kind of tolerance, isn't there? There's a the bad kind of tolerance. Here's how I want to explain this to you. Uh, this bad kind of tolerance has two components to it. There's a rational component and a moral component. And in both aspects, they seek to be non-rational and non-moral. Why? Because by, by sounding rational, it sounds too imposing. It sounds like you're, you're, you're forcing this on someone and obligating them to agree when you sound too rationalistic. So they want to sound non-rational and non-moral. But in doing so, they become, I will argue, irrational. By becoming non-rational, they become irrational. Same thing with morality. They want to sound non-moral so they don't sound like they're imposing some morality on other people. But in sounding non-moral, they actually become immoral. Uh, for example, this kind of rational uh, tolerance that says nobody should ever make any absolute claims to absolute truth, seeking to be uh, non-binding, non-imposing, and non-rational, you essentially become irrational because to say nobody should ever make any absolute claims is an absolute claim. That itself is an absolute claim. Uh, the worst line, unfortunately, is in, the, in the Star Wars series is, is uttered by my favorite character, Obi-Wan Kenobi. He says, in ep this is episode three, I think, he says, only, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Remember that? It's right before his duel with, with Anakin. He says, only a Sith deals in absolutes. That sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? Right? As a Jedi himself, he has just uttered an absolute statement saying only a Sith deals in absolutes. And by the way, that's absolutely true. The, the non-rational approach, right, nobody should ever claim anything absolute. It's irrational because that itself is, is an absolute claim. There's the kind of moral tolerance that seeks to be non-moral. This is the view that says, who are we to judge? Who are we to judge another culture or other people groups other individuals for what they do. Let's just live and let live according to our own subjective standards. Live and let live, right? That's a tolerance that seeks to be non-moral and non-morally binding and, and imposing on others, but that actually becomes immoral, doesn't it? When we look back on history and find people who have folded their arms in the face of evil and said, let's just live and let live, Let's live and let live in the face of racism. Uh, let's live and let live in the face of 
corruption and abuse. We don't applaud that and call that tolerance. We, we correct that, don't we? We say that's immoral. To be non-moral in the face of evil is to be immoral, isn't it? To, to take a more maybe everyday level example, it's not tolerant, it's not good tolerance. If a father were to say to their children who wants to watch TV all day, who am I to judge? Yeah, let's just, just let, let live. Let's <laughs> just live and let live. Right? Watch all the TV you want because I'm tolerant. Well, you would immediately call me out and say, that's not good tolerance. Right? If you want to call it tolerance, okay, but that's not good tolerance. That's bad tolerance, right? There is good tolerance and there's bad tolerance. And, and on the flip side, that also means there is such a thing as good intolerance and bad intolerance. Right? Our culture doesn't make these distinctions. We have to be more thoughtful and make these distinctions according to Scripture. The Christians in Thyatira are not being rebuked for tolerance per se, but for bad tolerance. Okay. Bad tolerance or over-tolerance of what is clearly evil. Uh, they're treating what's immoral as non-moral. Everyone's doing it. Everyone in our city is doing this. In fact, if you don't do this, you might not even get a job because every trading guild has their idol. And to, to superstitiously secure success, they require every employee to offer sacrifices to their idol. Everybody does this. Everybody who has a job does this. They treat what is immoral as non-moral. And say, who are we to judge? It's a way of life here in Thyatira. It's just something we do. And by the way, Christians do this too. I know a lot of Christians who live this way. What is the big deal? It's no big deal. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. Even Christians do it. That would have been one response. And some others could have thought, you know, I think it is kind of a big deal. Like, I, I, I am bothered by having to sacrifice to idols. It is a big deal, but it's not a bigger deal than losing my job. That could have been another response. It's not a bigger deal for me to refuse to make this fabric uh, that's going to be worn by the priests in, in, in Baal's temple and then lose my job. It is a big deal, but if I don't compromise a little bit with this, with this political figure, I'll, I'll become politically insignificant because every polit politician in our city has some idol they worship. If I'm going to have any significance in my city politically, any standing, I have to tolerate, tolerate some of their idolatry, some of their immorality, and that's bad tolerance. Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate bad things. And whether that's to maintain your financial standing or political significance or social acceptance, whatever it might be, I hold this against you, your bad tolerance. 
Now, before we get all kind of judgy in our hearts towards the Christians in Thyatira, look at the praise that they receive as well, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's high praise. Remember the, the rebuke given to the churches in Ephesus, and we heard this in the conf- call to confession was, you abandoned the work that you did at first. But the Christians in Thyatira, they, they built upon the work they did at first, and they did more than they did at first in loving one another and serving one another. So what's really surprising to us, what should be really surprising to us here, is that all of this wonderful works of love and service coexisted. Coexisted with sexual immorality and idolatry and with a false teacher on their pulpit. At the same time. This is surprising and it should be sobering to us. Is this kind of thing even possible? To have all these works of love and service and patient endurance and fruit and a complete lack of discernment and this utterly bad tolerance of false teaching. There is a um, pretty popular um, podcast, I think it's pretty popular at this point right now, um, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I would, if you, if you want to venture into it, it can, be, it can be a little disturbing, but I would carefully recommend that to you. It talks about this incredible rise of this mega church in Seattle called Mars Hill from the early 2000s and then how it came to this this drastic fall, and it's closing, basically. And the primary reason of its fall was the, the spiritual abuse of the pastor that persisted over decades. And, and this culture abuse that was tolerated over the, the course of the years. And one of the questions that you begin to ask as you hear about the, the stories of abuse is, how did they get away with this? How did they ever get away with this? How did, how did they ever not bring a charge for, for, for 20 plus years against this kind of abuse? And, and what you begin to hear also is that at that very same church, over the course of their 20-year history, there was tremendous fruit. People were being saved. In, in, in one of the most secular cities in the world, people were being baptized. People were coming out of addictions. People were becoming sober. Uh, People were returning to their families, broken marriages restored, people living generously with one another, housing homeless people off the streets. It's just beautiful testimonies coming out of the church. And, And people, one after another, began to just conclude, you know, if there's this much good, maybe we can tolerate that much bad. Until it came to a tipping point. Uh, when it just became so toxic and so abusive uh, that the leaders had to be exposed and brought down and the, the church ultimately closed down, it shut down. All of that coexisting with good works. I think the similar type of thing was happening here in Thyatira, 
right? Doing, they're doing a lot of good works, works of love and service and patient endurance while tolerating something they should not have tolerated. It's the kind of, it's the bad kind of tolerance our God hates because it ultimately destroys the church, the integrity of the church. And notice also how, how this contrasts with the church in Ephesus in the sense that the, the Christians in, in Ephesus held on to sound teaching, true doctrine, but tolerated a lack of love for one another. Whereas here you have the church in Thyatira who held on to love for one another while tolerated a lot of bad teaching. This is maybe an interesting human dynamic that we see as far back as you know, the early church. There's a spectrum, if you will, uh, with Ephesus on the end and Thyatira on the other end. Uh, a church that is this strong on, on, on truth, weak on love, and a church that is strong on love but weak on truth. And, and the fact is, neither has it right. Both receive this letter from Jesus himself who says, I, I hold this against you. Because neither the love over truth approach nor the truth over love approach is right. If you think about it, if you have love but you have no truth, Right, the, the love wouldn't be very deep. It would remain very shallow, wouldn't it? Because, because you have to, if you, in order to constantly affirm, 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 uh, you have to shy away from the obvious flaws and shortcomings that you see in someone. And so th- that kind of all-affirming love is a very shallow kind of love, the love that never corrects, a love that never rebukes, a love that never challenges or confronts you is a very shallow kind of love. But on the other hand, if you have... Truth without love, what you have is harsh truth. Good information you don't know how to get across to people because uh, you only speak harshly. Um, and in both instances, we see a lack of good tolerance and a lack of good intolerance. How is biblical truth and biblical love different? It's different when we look at the person of Jesus Christ. Um, we can see how he's different by looking at the way he embodied both the truth of God and the love of God perfectly. He's on the one hand truthful, and his words of truth go very deep. Right? Remember, his his mouth are like, or his words are like double-edged swords coming out of his mouth. It, it pierces through the soul. He, he will have nothing less than the whole truth about who we are. His love is not shallow. He's not content with that. On the other hand, at the same time, his love is able to receive us despite the truth of who we are. He's committed to both, the truth of who we are and loving us despite the truth of who we are. He is all good in his tolerance all good in his intolerance. There are Christians today who are loving but not truthfully so, which is bad tolerance, and Christians who are truthful but not lovingly so, which is bad intolerance. Both are in need of more Christ. More of his good tolerance, more of his good intolerance. So if you want to make a clear distinction here between you know, how, does, how's the, how are we supposed to go about tolerance, how are we go about intolerance, look to Christ for that distinction. Look to Christ for that main distinction. His discerning eye of truth, that the eyes like flame of fire that discern what is true and false and what is moral and immoral, 
see things the way he sees things, and also acquire his heart of mercy and grace. Listen to this gracious call to repentance that he extends even to Jezebel. I gave her time to repent, verse 21. Not just those who she's influenced and misled herself. I'm giving her time. I have given her time to repent. The implication of giving her time is she wasn't repentant. She refused to change. She continued to to practice sexual immorality and idolatry and lured others into doing the same thing. Even then, God gave her time. Not just a call, but time to respond to that call. He waited for her. That's a mercy that I find. The more I think about this, that's a, I am not sure if I can imitate that. It's mind-boggling. As people are hurt, marriages are destroyed, families are broken because of her, her teaching. And, and Jesus does call them to their senses, to be awakened to their senses. But when it comes to her, his first instinct is not to excommunicate her, but to incorporate her back into the fold of God. That is astounding how he errs towards mercy to that extent. But at the same time, Jesus clearly indicates here that as a spiritual husband of the church, as a king whose feet are like burnished bronze, right, he's not just going to stand idly by and let Jezebel destroy his bride. Verse 22, right, after he gave her time to repent, behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Here, the warning about the tribulation is not coming from Roman persecutors or Jewish persecutors, is it? It's coming from Christ himself. And that's quite a warning. There's love and there's truth. There's warm words of forgiveness and invitation to be reconciled, and then there's warning. If you, re- if you reject him. And then he asks this uh, incredibly ominous sounding note in verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. Wow. What does that mean? There are few interpretations of this. Um, one interpretation is that historically there was some indication of a great pestilence. Those spreading in Thyatira, and, and, and this could mean that God will not spare the children of Baal worshipers from that pestilence, but he will offer a special protection to the churches only, and their children only. Another interpretation is that God will take the lives of the children of Baal worshipers away from them before they, they sacrifice them on the altar of Baal because that was a part of Baal worship, is child sacrifice. And so... He could be saying, I, I will take, I will bring them into my fold, into my kingdom, before you have a, a, another chance at sacrificing another one of my little ones. Here's a third interpretation, and this is the one I'm le- I lean most towards. Um, I think this is the more accurate interpretation, that children here is a term for disciples, just as Paul used the word children for his disciples um, and the Christian saints. And this is a warning to those disciples of Jezebel who are continuing to spread and infect the church and destroy the church, that he will bring his judgment. He will not tolerate uh, those who 
threatened to destroy his bride. Um, in a way, he's saying before Jezebel and her followers can, can strike his bride dead, uh, he will act in self-defense and strike them dead. Uh, in, in verse 24, Jesus even refers to the practices of this Jezebel figure and her, her cult as those who practice the deep things of Satan. I think it sounds bad enough to say they practice the things of Satan, but here it says they practice the deep things of Satan. And I do not want to know, frankly, what that entailed, (laughs) but it was surely pretty messed up to be called the deeper things of Satan. And it's comforting, therefore, to hear Jesus say, I will judiciously, prudently judge those who practice the deep things of Satan. So if they refuse to repent at first, he says, I'm going to give them time. But if they still refuse to turn around from their sins, then, then the one whose feet are like burnished bronze, who holds the iron rod, will pronounce judgment and turn them into earthen pots that are broken into pieces. That's good intolerance, isn't it? It's good intolerance after a period of good tolerance. If you need, whenever you need that distinction made, look to Jesus, look to Christ. And it says in verse 23, he searches mind and heart, truth and love. He wants his church to resemble his mind and his heart, holding on to both, both his love and his truth, to be lovingly truthful and truthfully loving, and to not pit one against the other. And this is how he calls his people back to being identified as his people and citizens in his kingdom, in his city, the city of God, more than the city of Thyatira, more than the Greco-Roman culture, but kingdom citizens in the city of God. Now, is that the main goal? What is the main goal, the main objective of our repentance and of our returning? There's something deeper here. Uh, Take a look at, and this is the last point, the main goal, two verses, verse 25 and 28. Verse 25 says, only hold fast what you have until I come, until I come. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. The two things here that are common is that uh, there's, there's something or someone who's being promised to them. Um, verse 25, until I come, I will come to you. That's the promise. What's promised in verse 28? The morning star. And if you look at Revelation 22 later on, Jesus himself identifies himself as the bright morning star. Here he is offering himself himself as the gift. I'm going to gift them myself. That is the goal. It's, to not, it's not to get something Christ can give us, but it is to get Christ himself. That is the main goal. The point of returning to Christ is to return to Christ. It's to get him, to be with him, to be with Christ Emmanuel, God with us. That's the main goal. That's the main goal. It's not how, if we have Jesus, we'll be a bit more successful in Thyatira. That's not at all the promise, is it? It's to surrender Thyatira and find all that you need in Christ alone. 
Surrender whatever you find in Atlanta, Georgia. Find all that you need in Christ alone. Jesus is not promising, if you have me, you'll just have an ounce more political stability than those who don't have me. If you have me, you'll have just an ounce more financial stability than those who don't have me. He's not promising material, financial success or stability. He's promising himself. Those who are my people will return to me and find me to be all-sufficient. If anyone's repenting, that's what they're getting. It's Christ. And in him, we have the promises of everything else. When we surrender everything else for him, we find everything else in him, the true political stability in his kingdom, the true financial stability in his inheritance, the true love and acceptance we need in his love and acceptance of us at the cross, his cross. It's all found in him. And he's saying nothing, no gift, no treasure, no person out there will ever be as bright a morning star as me. I'm the gift. I'm the goal. That's what he's saying to the church in Thyatira and to the church in Atlanta. And we will return to this earthly temporary city, not as if it's our permanent home, but as, as if we've already found our permanent home, as if already been discovered, we've already discovered our greatest treasure, and we'll be sent into, into the city, this temporary city, to, to help others catch the same goal, to catch the same treasure, get the same prize. The reminder here is that the treasure, there's not something out there that for you to find. Don't busy yourself with that as if there's something out there in the city for me to acquire and it will just give me the satisfaction I long for deep down inside. That satisfaction you long for deep down inside is found in Christ. Find it and then go. Invite others to see the same thing. Um, If you haven't seen the movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, it's still out in the theaters. Um, I... I actually thought it was pretty good. I thought it was actually a really good movie. I thought it would just be a silly kind of a comedy movie, but it was actually pretty good. I'll make one simple point from that movie because I don't want to spoil the movie that's still out in the theaters. I think I made a promise at some point to to you guys I wouldn't spoil movies that are still out in release, right? So, hence my dated examples from the 80s and the 90s. But um, here's a let me give you like a cryptic synopsis um, so you can hold on to it you know, like, like a fortune cookie, and then after you watch it, you can crack it open, and you'd be like, ah, oh, that's what he meant, okay? So here it is. The girl character, the, the main character who's a girl, thinks that her greatest treasure is going to be found and is found in the city. Her greatest treasure is in the city. She thinks she's found it. But in the end, what she realizes is that her greatest treasure is not found in the city, but her greatest treasure is found in the one who built the city. Just hold on to that. Go watch it, and then crack that open. It'd be like, ah, light bulb. All right. And maybe it'll redeem the movie for you. Maybe you won't like the movie, but, oh, okay, that redeems it. Okay. She thought her greatest treasure was found in the city, but actually it was found in the one who built the city. The point I'm making is this, guys. Let us not busy ourselves in our city as if the treasure is still out there in the city. Because it's not. Or 
in the next city we move to. The true and greatest treasure is found in the one who built the city, the city of God. And our goal in life should be to have him and to hold him as our greatest treasure. To hold fast to him, that is the goal. If you get busy with everything else and miss him, you'll miss everything else. But if you surrender everything for him, you'll regain everything. you find all that you need in him. It's what John Calvin said. I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? Everything in Christ. I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? Everything in Christ. That's your goal. Make him your goal. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your gospel, your good news, and your patience in, in sharing this good news to us day in, day out, week in and week out. And Lord, if we have been slow to hear this, help us to hear it now and help us to return to you. Help us to discern your truth. Help us to discern the difference between good and bad tolerance, good and bad intolerance, and imitate the love and truth of Christ in our lives. And may we be, therefore, true salt and light in our city, in this earthly place you've called us to be. And during the temporary season that we're in, here on earth, help us to be your ambassadors, your representatives. Give us wisdom, Lord, to apply what we heard today to our lives. Um, Help us to surrender all to gain Christ and in him, everything else and uh, help us to discern what that looks like in 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 our own lives Uh, whether that means surrendering something financially in order to draw closer to christ surrendering something academic or vocational in order to draw closer to christ surrendering a, a pleasure or a habit that we know you would not be pleased by that you wouldn't want us to tolerate help us to discern these things if, if it's still a blur, help us to surrender our time and energy to, to study more of your word and to hear more from you. Help us to, Lord, uh, lay it all down so we might gain Christ and in Christ gain all that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.